How can you grow faith throughout your whole life? WCF's Faith Launch Program is designed to help you answer that huge question as you embark on your own life journey. The answer matters because the true measure of our life is faith, learning to set aside our instincts and to trust God and His Son. You develop this faith in the decisions you make, the relationships you form, and the trials you encounter. Faith Launch gives you a set of strong faith-building tools, connects you with a network of peers and mentors, and helps you reflect on the best faith plan to help guide you through your journey. Faith Launch starts Fall 2020 and is aimed at young adults between the ages of 18 and 35. There is no cost to participate, and to better accommodate your schedule, much of the program will be delivered online. The program wraps up with a final retreat to weave together key learnings and send off participants with fresh faith inspiration. To find out more, visit wcfoundation.org slash faithlaunch. Hi, this is Levi. Before we get into this episode, I wanted to take a quick minute to introduce a few of the other podcasts in the WCF Podcast Network. Tom and Naomi are exploring how we interact in our ecclesial relationships in From the Platform. It's a very in-depth series that is incredibly helpful for understanding and developing compassion and better listening practices. That's From the Platform. Sam Taylor from Cleveland, Ohio, produces weekly devotionals in Pause to Consider. Think uh, Mr. Rogers meets uh, Fireside Chat. I love Sam's humble style and think every episode is fantastic. You can find both of those wherever you get your podcasts or on our website at wcfoundation.org. Now, here's the show. Welcome back to A Little Faith. This is a podcast sponsored by the Williamsburg Christadelphian Foundation. A Little Faith podcast explores both the challenges and hope of living a life of faith. In this episode, Levi and Helen interview Brother David Andrews in Guyana, Brother Ian Neblett in Panama, and Brother Dale Andrews in Canada. They discuss the online study day, Responding to Racism, a Biblical Perspective, that was held on June 27, 2020. The group also share their experiences and faith learnings in bringing our children up to have confidence in their own identity in Christ and what we all as believers can do to be more inclusive in our ecclesial life. Welcome back to A Little Faith. I'm very excited about the conversation we're going to have today. You guys organized a study day, which you had, I guess it was, it was about two months ago now, and um, that was very well attended and I think the discussions are obviously very important at this time. We've had all sorts of unrest all throughout the world lately due to, uh, you know, on, on what, what we call social justice or racial issues. So, yeah, we were going to talk, kind of just talk some more about that, uh, that study day, um, what you guys covered there and see how we can help, help each other. Um, I think especially now, because I think the brotherhood, young people, old people, everyone is kind of curious about what they should be doing, what they should be saying, what they should be thinking, you know, how they talk to their kids or how they talk to their friends or their coworkers. Brother David, you spoke about the importance of family life in developing faith. And what are your and other people's reflections on parenting children who experience racial prejudice? And how can we, how can we prepare our children better to keep them safe and help them to grow their faith? Well, to begin with, I grew up in a beautiful little village in the interior of Guyana called Bartico that had a, it was multiracial, about half of it or a little more than that would have been black, much of it would have been Indian and the rest would have been indigenous, what you call American Indian, and um, absolutely no Caucasians. And in our environment, apart from the little interactions you would have at time of national elections, when people generally vote along racial lines, not Christians, of course, racism is almost non-existent. And we all, uh, the ch- growing up in school, we play together, people work together, and um, we, we are quite unfamiliar, especially on the black-white front. I came to, down to Georgetown after I was baptized in 1968. I came down to Georgetown, which is kind of a reflection proportionally of the race situation on Bartika. 
We're in this capital city, maybe uh, more than half are blacks and the rest are Indians, and not very, ma very many Amerindians. But basically, I'm accustomed to getting along in an environment that is very racially tolerant. The only time when we become conscious of race is around election times because the politicians tend to play that card in order to get their votes. So it means that in bringing up our children, um, which <laughs> you know, would include Dale and Dawn, and um, I have two other girls, Diane, who lives in Atlanta, Georgia, and Deborah, who lives in Guyana, she's a dietitian. We never really had that as an issue to deal with. The only time I ever had the interaction of racism and a relatively mild extent was when I was studying in England, in London. I found that um, not in the classroom, they were Caucasians as well as non-Caucasians and we all got along quite fine. I do remember a couple of cases I would go on the bus and um, no white person would sit next to me. They would prefer to stand. There would be three-seater bus and these double-deckers and a white person comes in, they would, they would prefer to stand and hold on to the rails before they sit to anyone who is black. But I took it in stride because I understood that, you know, people grew up that way. They were taught that way in their societies, maybe by even their parents. They don't know any better. And it's not for me to show any bitterness or retaliate. It's not going to... I'm only there temporary anyhow. Mm. And um, I never allowed it to get to me in any personal way, even though it was kind of sour. But I, I kind of got along with it for the time while I was there. But on a white and black um, negativity, I don't know much about that because I have traveled fairly, uh, a fair amount. Apart from England, I'm visiting many ecclesias, Bournemouth, uh, what have you, you name it in England, Birmingham, Bristol, in England, when it comes to the brotherhood, I have never, never experienced any form of black and white racism. I can say that without a, a shadow of conscience. But, you know, I've never had that at all. But that does not mean it does not exist. It doesn't mean that at all. Because I've heard from other people that it exists and they have had the unfortunate experience. But personally, maybe because... Most of the places I've gone to, I've been to as a guest speaker. Not in England. I, wasn't, I was a student in England. I wasn't a guest speaker in England. But all the other places, Canada, um, I spoke at Niagara and went to California on three different occasions. And I have never, never had any racial interaction or negativity in the brotherhood that I can speak about. So I didn't have very much to teach my children on that score, personally. The, the emphasis has to be, in addition to us as adults, watching our behavior, and a lot is going to depend on how we pass this down to our children. And that has to be in the home. Um, while I didn't have a race issue in Georgetown and you know in my neighborhood, our family made full use of the dinner table. Well, it's the dinner table, it's the breakfast table or the lunch table. In Guyana, dinner is not the big meal. <laughs> so, um, you know, that's the time when we would ask the kids how they did at school, who they had a problem with. You, f try, to you try to dig out of Dale, who we got into a fight with. He never got gets into a fight with anyone, but we, uh, we always say that's too good to be true. I used to get into fights with children and so on. A lot has to be, you have a wonderful platform. The one time when the family meets together, that's assuming they eat together, to not only talk down to the children, but to ask them questions in a casual and a cordial and semi-playful mood without them having to feel they're, they're being investigated, mm. you know, and you can um, get to find out. Then you're going to know who did what when mom and dad weren't around. And uh, if we can use it as a platform to tell them the right things. I implemented a few tests to find out if Dale was doing anything behind my back. I wasn't suspect, I didn't, I didn't succeed in doing anything because he was such a, such a good kid. <laughs> but uh, sometimes you, tell us, you think it's too good to be true. I'm, I'm, I'm gonna catch him sometime. I never did, <laughs> you know? Yeah, so I, I, was, I was never able to catch him. But um, that is a time when you try to find out their views of life and have them corrected. 
and they just question the racism thing, that's a good time to positively tell them that it is wrong, not waiting for it to come up because they may never tell you, especially if they feel they're going to be indicted for it. You know, mm-hmm. have you have any one of you got a race problem? Are there any black kids in your school or white kids and so on? And if we're not necessarily how they treat them, you assume they treat them well, but how are they treated in school? What about the, the, the teachers, the minority or the, whatever it is? Because there are times when the whites are minorities when they come out of North America and, and Europe. They become the minority. How do we treat them? And so on. So I would like to say that the, the eating table is a good platform to be proactive with the children. Find out how they are doing, what are really their unconscious views and outlook on the world out there when strangers, not of their ilk are around, and take the opportunity to impress upon them what God expects of us and what we as parents expect of them. And uh, um, let them know that putting joke and fun aside, we are serious about it. They need to make that part of their character table. Do you think, though, that when we travel, you know, obviously, Brother Dale, I mean, I'm sure you've got more to say about this because you've traveled. You traveled from Guyana to England. Now you're living in Canada. That Not that there's a difference between cultures, but there are challenges from moving from, from one culture to the other. Um, yes, I, I think there definitely were, were challenges um, moving from between cultures. I, I do think... Um, that maybe as as a child looking back at you know you asked that about um, the way in which preparation for keeping safe and growing faith I think looking at it from the other end I think overall we were just trained to kind of keep focused on the the price before us which is our calling in Christ my own challenges traveling in different places and so on I do think there were subtle differences. Um, at times, there were sometimes um, incidents that, you know, I found a bit sour, even within the brotherhood. But we, you know, kept focus as far as our faith is concerned. And at each point, realized that even though there may have been, you know, one or two incidents that were not good, there were still overwhelmingly lots of brethren who were very helpful and very loving, which I would always have the highest of regard for. So um, from that standpoint, I always try to focus on the goal of maintaining my faith, maintaining a loving outlook, and recognizing that our community is much more than, you know, any isolated incidents that might happen. Do you feel differently about your children's experience compared to yours now they're growing up? Um, I, I do I do best with having been brought up in Guyana where this was not a problem for us. And we I think it allowed us to develop a very deep appreciation for what the truth is, irrespective of the feelings of anyone around. You know, this is what the truth really means to us, and that was interpreted in our lives. Um, with our children, they are now living in a society where they have not had the benefit of growing in a place like Guyana. And so for them, they would be overwhelmingly a minority from day one. And, you know, the little, sometimes either subtle or unintentional things that might happen to them in in a place like Canada, even if you know Ill, no ill will was meant, it's more likely to have an impact on them rather than if they had grown to know and appreciate the truth in a place like Guyana, where they did not, they would not have felt any, um, they would not have felt any bit different from anyone else mm. in Guyana. So um, growing up, I think for them in a place like Canada would probably be a little more challenging for them. And do you have conversations with them about race? For the most part, we had not for many years. And then I think now that they're teenagers, we've had to talk about it, especially when they started going to gatherings. And, you know, they've had a few interactions that I think could have gone a little bit better. And so we've had to talk to them about it and explain, well, you know, along the lines of, 
you have to know why you're there, appreciate the truth, and it's not about any individual or any perceived um, slight that may happen to you at any one time. Do you have any reflections, Brother Ian? I'm trying to think of the situation that my kids are in over here in Panama, and uh, they're obviously in a very different situation than, than Dale's children. But I, I, you know, I listen to Dale and I'm thinking to myself, wow, that's, that's probably the situation that I would have been in if I had stayed in Canada. But we're here now and racism is not an issue here in Panama. Yeah, not really. There's, there's slight racism when it comes to the people from Cologne compared to the people from Panama City, like in general racism. But for my children, if they decide to leave Panama when they, when they, you know, for education or whatnot, I think I would just have to um, try to develop, try to try to make them um, develop their relationship with, with God and his son, first and foremost. And I think that's the most important thing. Keep them focused on that. And also let them know that, make them aware of the potential disappointments that they may face in and out of the brotherhood. You know, you have to be very blunt that they may face potential disappointments. And I think Dale mentioned the fact that we, we have to be consistent in helping them keep their eye on the prize, living the truth and living in the times that, we're, that we are living in. And knowing that these are the last days, I think we have to be absolutely blunt with our children and letting them know that this, this is a life and death situation. You know, and I think that's, that's important to mention especially with children at that age, let them soak in that, that, that teaching that this is very serious. Yeah. And I think, I think, yeah, uh, you know, my kids are, are at a, at an age now where I'm just taking in the advice from brother David and brother Dale. Mm. So uh, I'm, I'm at a, an initial point right now with them. Mm. So it comes down to the matter of identity an identity in Christ and understanding one's identity and in, in living in this world. And, how can we encourage our young people to feel that, that that identity is theirs and that they do belong to the family of God and that is something that they they want to be more a part of? If at times they don't identify with you know with our with our wider community, our Christadelphian community, like how how can we help overcome those barriers where our young people are saying, "Well, I I don't belong here, I don't feel I fit in, or I'm disappointed." How can we encourage them more? And I think it's also, it's, it's a universal question. It's not just about race. It's something we want for all our, all our young people, regardless of where we come from. I think that's, that's, that's a tricky question, especially yeah. for those who are members of ecclesias with very little diversity, for mm-hmm. example. Well, in my opinion, the, the majority should always go out of their way to make the minority feel welcome. I think when that happens, that, that creates a beautiful thing when that happens. If, if that doesn't happen, the minority believer, let's say, you know, of any race still has, still has options. They can, they can take the lead or the initiative to raise awareness uh, to cultural sensitivity. They can also be active in seeking friendships, you know, outside of the ecclesia. Sometimes where, you know, where, where someone may say, oh, I don't fit in but they're closing their potential to go out there and meet other brothers and sisters. I felt that way at one point and I kind of just stayed to myself and I, re- and I, you know, I didn't realize that, you know, I can go out there and meet other brothers and sisters. So I think that that's also there as well as an option. I think that what you guys are doing with social media, because, you know, these kids that are growing up now in this digital age, you know, I think what, what you guys are doing can go a long way in, in, in helping people to, to fit in. I notice in, in the in the group chats that there you have whites and you have you know and blacks commenting. So there's there's connections being made, which which I think is good in the conversation. Just want to echo as well. Um, I, I think the media work that you've been doing in terms of getting the stories out of all our brethren, I think it's a great initiative. I also encourage our children, for example, to try and travel as well, to recognize and value the many positive uh, brothers and sisters of all races that 
we've encountered over the years. Because I think um, when we think of the many positive ones, it's very hard to let a few bad incidents sour it. So I try to remind them as well of to remember remember them always fondly and to recognize that there are many like them if we would you know have a positive outlook. But if focusing if we only focus on the negative things, I think we're selling ourselves short. I like to endorse that. And I would want to be <laughs> Bold enough to say that something positive has come out of this pandemic, this uh, COVID-19 pandemic, sad as it is, that um, the, the, these online meetings we have in through Zoom and whatnot have brought many of us together and it carries that potential to bring even many more together. So that young sister, well, mostly falls to the sisters, but the young brothers as well who feel that they may not have potential mates in their own proximity or environment, that they are able to reach around the world. Now, my ecclesia here in Georgetown is just about <laughs> roughly 20 people or so. You know, the, the brothers and sisters is just about 20 of us. So on a bad day, you'll probably get about 15. And, uh, and other times, especially if you have visitors, you'll probably get about 25. And in Guyana, you still, after 100 odd years, the truth has been in Guyana for over 120 years, we still do not have 100 brethren in Guyana. So just imagine that. How frustrating it can be to young people to be able to link up with those within our community who share our ideas and, and, do, and do not leave them exposed. They need to run out there to make friends and partners. You see, but um, this pandemic situation has significantly changed that. And that now at a memorial service, occasionally we get people from Australia. Uh, you know, we get people from literally all around the world, the different parts of the Caribbean, New Jersey, wherever you, popping in, giving exhortations. I've tried to grab them as much as I can, uh, the occasional brother to come. And so we have this variety, you know, and, and you're not suffering from this inbreeding of just two and three brethren talking, talking, talking all the time. And... Um, this can help the young people considerably to see that even within the brotherhood, we have a wider scope, a greater scope to meet one another. And we don't have to feel it's two and three brethren we're looking at all the time. You know, there's lots of scope for cross-pollination. And I think it's, it's, it's really a good thing. And as Brother Dale and, and, and Brother Ian were saying, what you're doing, the kind of work uh, you are doing helping to enlighten and to educate others, you know, reach out to them and cause them to see that, hey, look, here's what some brethren in Australia think. Here's what some brethren in South Africa think, and so on. And this would tend to flatten the curve, I think is the word. <laughs> Get people to understand, well, yes, you know, I might have grown up in an all-black Christadelphian um, community. There are white-loving brethren out there, mm -hmm. and vice versa. You know, I think it's this idea we cooked up, you know, don't talk to black people, don't talk to white people. It's a, it's a disease born out of pure ignorance. This is what we're accustomed to and that's what we, you know, you know, that has got to change because we are advocating a mandate from our party leader, the Lord Jesus Christ, that he is coming to change that. So how could we behave any differently now while we wait? I can remember spending some lovely nights at Brother Jeff's home and all that football and all that thing we playing. I do not know what white and black racism is mm. in the brotherhood, but I have to admit it does exist. But that's just one example, like being in someone's home yes. um, is is a step in the direction of getting to know each other better. Yeah, like yeah. whether that's on Zoom or whether that's phys physically yeah. being hospitable and welcoming people into our homes. And yeah. that's definitely a way we can be more welcoming and yeah. understand each other. Are there other examples of being yeah. more welcoming and being more understanding that, that um, you can share? Um, yeah. to, to give some practical advice to our listeners, how can people be more welcoming, more understanding, more thoughtful? I really appreciated some brethren who were willing to even talk about this issue. Um, I think there are too many that have just kind of buried their heads in the sand and said it doesn't exist. And I don't think that's helpful at all because sometimes human nature, you assume the worst. But many of the brethren that over the years just reached out to my family 
Um, we've had many positive interactions with them, gone for suppers, had our sons spend like a week at their house doing all sorts of activities. And the bonds are just amazing. And my kids see their kids like, they're, like their own family. So that making that effort helps. Even though you, you're in the same meeting, thinking about someone and, and reaching out to them and forming social bonds helps. As against, you know, sometimes we can just fall into, we just meet in a group of our own little clique. And if, you know, you're standing on the outside and you're always seeing one group going off by themselves and maybe posting, oh yeah, we're having a great time over here. And you're the one person on the outside looking and after values, it doesn't feel very encouraging. So I think uh, having experienced many brethren who've made that effort, and kind of looked out for others within the group. I I'll always remember them quite fondly. Yeah, I've had some I've had some excellent experiences as well growing up in Toronto, and uh, I remember just give you one example how our cliche tried to be more engaging and welcoming to to everybody, all the different um, ethnicities and stuff like that. We used to have themed lunches, for example, you know, instead of the regular chicken, mashed potatoes, whatever, you know, we would have Mexican day or we would have Caribbean day. We used to vary it up just so that people can experience, you know, different cultures and stuff to create that sensitivity. And I think it was so important. And, you know, that's just one example of how an ecclesia can do things to be a little bit more uh, culturally sensitive. Mm. food just brings people together it, exactly it, it forms connections power. that's what a table is all about <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> gathering around a table and and sharing fellowship and growing our relationships in jesus you know when we come together different ethnic groups because particularly minorities are likely to feel a little apprehensive you see if you're the majority you don't feel apprehensive it says oh well, there are just two people over there you know and, and, and the confidence tends to lie with the ones in the, in the vast majority. I, I think it would behove, I think they'll said something to this effect, it would behove the, the, the ones who, especially if they're on home turf, to go out of the way to not only to befriend, but to involve mm-hmm. the visiting minority, to involve them, get them to speak about themselves, get them to do things, and bring them genuinely into the subgroup so that they can feel as though they are brothers and sisters on, on the younger scale, you know, at the youth level or whatever. If we, because you can attend and yes, this is a nice group, we're all Christadelphian young people and so on, but you have these little pockets left out there and the minority one, it, it's a little uncertain whether I'm being accepted. Do they really like me? They're just skinning their teeth, whatever. Can I really be part of this group? So one has got to extend the hand of fellowship, and not only accept, but bring them in and get them to participate, ask them about themselves, speak about mutual experiences so that people can know, yes, they're flesh and blood like anyone else. And not every time you see a minority, you know, well, they're just beggars on the streets or, you, you know, it's some mm-hmm. ignorant person who's never been to school. They must, it, or that idea, that branding, I think, breeds lack of confidence. And um, even though people come together physically, inwardly, they are still apart. They, they have not been made to feel as though they can betray their thoughts to one another or that when they leave and they go back, people won't be saying negative things about them. We talk about exchange of speaking platforms, you know, where um, people from minority areas, people who are, you know, speakers from minority areas, they, they would, I know this happens. I mean, I have been the beneficiary of this in, in many ways, often. But they also could be invited at the regular level, not only the big Bible schools and so on, to, to participate and, 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 and exhort and exchange of platforms, things like that, right? We could have joint memorial services, gospel proclamation meetings and so on. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, they share the ecclesial and fraternal and general announcements. You know, there's an ecclesia nearby. It might not have everybody that look like us. That's a little ecclesia over there. And, you know, occasionally you, you can't do it all the time, but occasionally you come together and let it be a real brotherhood. So those are little practical ways that I think we can try to get a handle on the day-to-day difficulties. And we all have skills and talents to bring to yeah. your 
ecclesias. And so we need to find out what those skills and talents are when we meet new people. I also just want to add to that. I found sometimes that sometimes you feel as if in a meeting, as if you're just a stowaway. You're just you're not always part of the main course. You're just a side dish. But help giving the opportunity to brethren to take on roles. Sometimes even as much as calling them to do a reading or prayers, it helps. It sometimes seems as if you're just there, but you're not really part of it. I've heard complaints of some members even that, you know, if I don't go for a month even, no one will really miss me anyway. So let alone ask you to pray or do something. So hearing things like that, it, it, particularly in larger meetings, it makes it easy for someone in that situation to just say, well, why, why am I making the effort, especially in the winters we have in Canada, to go to meeting rather than, you know, just go elsewhere? So making that, con- that conscious effort to recognize that, well, I've called brother so-and-so for the last four weeks to read or to pray, and, well, maybe involve someone else. And this is irrespective of their race. It's just in general, it's good practice to look out for those that might not necessarily be in our circle. Definitely. Yeah, that, that goes back to what Ian said. I, I'm going to keep thinking about that, that... He kind of was saying that it's always the majority's job to include a minority, and that could, you know, that can go multiple ways outside of just black and white race issues. That might be an answer for what you know what what an ecclesia can do. Definitely. Yes, I wanted to give a little example how unwittingly, unwittingly, we can present an image, a bad image, unwittingly. I had to exhort at an ecclesia, I will not name it or say whether it's in or out of Guyana. But um, this ecclesia had two different groups of people. Normally they would get along together, nobody would notice any difference, there's no talk about racism or anything like that. But whenever I get up on that platform and I look down on the floor, you see one race over this side on the left hand and another race on the right hand. How does that happen? Racism wasn't intended, but it happens because people like to sit next to those they know. You turn up at the meeting, let's say a little later, you come in and you look for where your family is sitting and you go and sit with them. It's so natural. We just ease into it, you know? But let's assume you and Nisha are the only black people in the place. I come in now and it would look, it would appear that I made a choice. Let me go and sit near the black people because... I feel comfortable with them. But this is not exactly the situation, but it's a like noun to it. Now, where it happens once, you won't see anything. But it happens every time I go to that ecclesia. All right? You see one race sitting on one side of the aisle and another race sitting on another. And I raised this thing with um, a very senior brother. And he says, perhaps, you know, you should talk to them. Well, let me know. How do I begin to do that? <laughs> that that I might as well go and study for some PhD. I, I don't know how to do that. So it's it really saying that we need to be a little bit more proactive. We need to be very conscious of the image we are presenting un, unintentionally to ourselves and to some extent to the outsider that we should make an effort to, to mingle with others. Yes, I mean, um, it might be a case of you and your wife going and sitting next to somebody else, but it's not only that. You got all your children and everybody to sit together. It happens one week, it happens the other week. Cousin, auntie, everybody grouped together. And that can spill over into an idea that is unsavory. Because as it grows, as you multiply that, it doesn't give a nice impression. But in, in reality, outsiders point at those things and says, you know, you only have an outside view, but in their heart, from which your own Bible judges you, this is what is the, this is what it looks like. And we should do our best to avoid that. Mm. When we go to camps and so on, we see a few minorities packed in a little corner, huddled, maybe unsure of themselves, a little frightened. Somebody should take the initiative. Maybe the leaders of the camp or senior sisters, brothers, you know, and get them to intermingle. It brings that sense of brotherhood mm. that transcends the barriers of color. It's very important, or else we're not going to win this race. People are going to always be talking about it. 
And if and if that group was were a group of children or teenagers, we would just ask them to mix, wouldn't we? We wouldn't hesitate to ask children or teenagers to mix, but yes. because we're adults, we hesitate. But yes. we all need to have some humility that we ultimately we're all children of God, and mm. we need to be mature in our faith to have that confidence to mix as well. And it, I think it does come from a a place of having confidence to get to know each other, yes. and we need to encourage each other to be more confident. Yes. We've got to go against the grain of our own natural desires. It's like trying to roll a ball back uphill. If it, a, a special effort is not made, we'll just go along with the status quo and nothing will happen. But then you've got to realize the image you're presenting is not a, it's not a holy image at all. So one has got to say, yeah, look, this thing doesn't look nice. Look, those people are over there. Who are they? Let me go call them or go to them and, and bring them into your group or go and join their group and talk to them on their level. Mm. Yes, and it's catching, it's also catching people as they walk in the door, but also before they leave, you know, don't let anyone slip out um, without someone noticing so that you yeah. know, they're acknowledged. It's, it's really important. At our Ecclesia here in Korea, at, at Koreatown, the brother who does the announcements announces every absence, which I thought was strange when I first joined. So, so now what we do is now we let them know if we're not going to be there for whatever reason, because we're traveling or whatever. And at first I, at first I thought, well, that's not really good. Like if someone doesn't come, they shouldn't be like public information, you know? <laughs> but, but on the other hand, I think the beauty of our Ecclesia here at the Los Angeles Hispanic Ecclesia is that you are missed. It is guaranteed that if you didn't come, everybody knew. And if, uh, you know, when you do come, you're, you're expected and greeted and welcomed. I think it's interesting, you know, I think racial injustice, you know, racism, how to respond. It's, just, it's kind of just gets down to like what we're saying, which is, which is love, which is include, you know, be inclusive and reach out to people and care, you know, that's kind of what you all have said. It's like, it's a systemic problem and it's a, that's a systemic solution. And from that point of love, I feel like you were saying that we need to build more resilience in our young people, mm. um, a resilience of faith and, re- and re- a resilience of integrity in Jesus, that regardless of where they are in the world, especially if they do move around and they travel, that God is with them and that they always have that identity regardless. Yeah, like Dale said, that it's important to know brothers and sisters so that when or if you experience racism in our community, um, you have a balance, right? You don't think the whole community is is that certain way. And that's so our, our ecclesias should be that, should absolutely be that. I just wanted to add as well, uh, just just that brethren should be comfortable talking about this topic. I, I know for myself, it's been a journey. A year ago, I would have never imagined I could possibly be talking about such a topic with Christadelphians. But I realize, I've, or I've had to learn to realize the benefit in being able to talk openly about it, just like anything else. Um, it kind of decreases mistrust and opens avenues for positive engagement and for, for some people even healing of wounds. I've just had to learn over the last few months how many brothers and sisters have had so many negative experiences that they've just had pent up within them and there was no way of talking about it. It's like uh, you're just facing a wall of brethren who probably just sweep it onto the carpet. And so I found it good to talk about it and and have open dialogue so that brothers and sisters, you know, if possible, can can heal and some can move fast. There's been some who've left the truth and some have said they want nothing to do with Christophians at all as a result of their experiences. And I, I just think if there was a formal way in which, or even informal, that these topics could be spoken about, just like any other thing, and, and also to recognize that as a community, we have to stand up and say it is wrong. Because we don't know what we don't know. And if, you know, as a majority we just think well i don't see it so it doesn't exist that doesn't mean it doesn't exist and and to be willing to listen to others listen to their stories 
um, I think it goes a long way in fulfilling our mandate of being disciples of Christ, of caring for the lost sheep, and actually bringing back some who've been wounded along the way. Yes. I mean, I have, I have heard quite a few stories over the last few months, and I feel it's really important that people need to share to work through any trauma they have to then be able to move on and then be able to do something more positive or be in a positive place. And at that point, you know, that we've been talking about love and we've been talking about being more welcoming. I mean, that's ultimately how we are going to preach the gospel better when, when anyone who comes into our midst can see that love and see us unified. And that, that must be the most important thing that we are showing to anyone who's a part of us or who walks in our doors. I think you, you mentioned the fact, you know, being able, being able to move on is important. You know, especially you mentioned before that what's coming up is going to be so much better. It's going to be perfect. So we, we have to be able to move on. We have to develop, I guess, a thick skin to these kind of things, realizing that, that when Jesus comes, all these problems are going to be eliminated. It's going to be a, a perfect situation. So. I also want to say that it's an opportunity for ecclesias, you know, in as much as, you know, some brethren might say, well, we're the majority and we're not affected. They don't appear to be affected by it. Some of these difficult conversations has, I think it's mutually beneficial because if we do have prejudices with it and, and everyone, irrespective of color, suffers some of these things, I think it's actually an opportunity that should be welcomed to address it before Christ comes back, rather than, you know, have someone going around thinking that, well, Brother X or Sister Y in that church over there is a, is a, is a hypocrite because they've done this to me or done that, and it's never been addressed. There was no opportunity for reconciliation or apology or anything or even clarification of what might have just been a misunderstanding. Um, so having these conversations, it's mutually beneficial. And it should be recognized that just like any other sin in our lives that we're trying to root out, out of our lives, it should be approached the same way rather than just swept under the rug. Mm -hmm. um, because doing that, while we might think we're serving God to the best of our knowledge, maybe we might be surprised that at the judgment seat, God actually, Christ actually sees that there was a problem with us that he never addressed. So we should be willing to address this and, and be, see it as, a, as an opportunity. And I think that's universally true for sin issues as well. If you're you know, struggling with one thing to find others that are struggling with it and solve it, you know, work on it in an honest way instead of like you're saying, I think also, also a lot of a lot of things can go ignored. We've had families here in our in our area and other people that have, that have been in touch with us through the podcast, you know, who are raising teenagers. Uh, and when in June, when there was all these uh, a lot of these protests all around the, the country here in the U.S., how do you answer your kid who says they want to go to this protest? And they may be white or black or whatever. And I think that's that to me is still a, a, a big question for us here because the logic being uh, or the argument being, you know, that the teenager is saying, well, I want to do something and I want to help bring more justice to the world. That would be what they would say. So there, there is some thinking, right? We're obviously getting caught up in emotions, but that's the thinking. What would you say to that teenager? I think those who are marching in principle have a good cause, especially what they saw on television about the Floyd story. We don't have to go through that again. I think what we talk about racism in that context is not just white and black not maybe um, clashing with each other. It's more about institutionalized racism, meaning one party, one racist disadvantage in the critical areas of society because of their color. In other words, they cannot get certain kinds of jobs. They cannot go into certain types of universities. Certain things, certain meaningful things that can make them contribute to the structure of the society do not favor them. They are unlooked. This is not just somebody, oh, I don't like you. Your skin is black. You shouldn't live in my street. I'm not talking about that. That's the, the minor part. I'm talking about that 
where their whole family, they are being obstructed from giving out the potential in life because certain things they cannot aspire to within society, even though Obama might have been president. Um, I think that is the real grouse here. And um, I would, could only look at it from the Christadelphian standpoint, from the biblical standpoint. And that is pointing to the scriptures and who we are, the ideals we hold there are pretty exclusive. They are not normal. They run contrary to much of the edicts of what society is calling us to be, to participate in society. Everybody feels a natural urge to participate in society and to make the environment, the city, and the borough a better place. That includes Christadelphians, but there's a limit to which we allow ourselves to participate in that process, especially the political process, because of our belief that we already belong to a political party, literally belong to a political party. When we were baptized, we got a party card. We are followers of the Lord Jesus. We are not typical bensitters in a church that go to a church on Sunday and just be nice to your neighbor. We are actually looking forward to a world order to come. Literally. And most people cannot understand it. It makes no sense. Going to church is all about being nice people. We take it several stages farther. In the scriptures, one of the stories that stand out for me is the story about Judas Iscariot. On the face of it, the Gospels don't give you the full story about Judas Iscariot, but Judas Iscariot was not just a man that stole 10 cents from the communal bag of the apostles. Judas Iscariot belonged to the, um, the zealot party. He belonged to a different political party that had opposing views to what Christ stood for. Christ intended to bring a real political government that would change not only Jerusalem and Judah and Israel, but the whole. From what I've gathered from the scriptures, and all this is relevant to what I'm saying, it might take a minute to explain it, but what I gathered from the scriptures is that Judas Iscariot wanted the same thing. He belonged to the Zealot, which is a political party that wanted the emancipation of the Jews from the Romans. And he was in that party, but he found Jesus, who he thought, or Jesus found him, and he joined with the Lord because he thought Jesus, who had made these miraculous powers, could do a better job. But when he did not see Jesus making a serious attempt to take the government physically, I think he, become, he became disenchanted. And he tried to force the Lord's hand when he sold him for a 30 pieces of silver. He says, well, okay, you're going to be arrested. That's what he may be telling himself. You got to do something about this. Because this talk about love and righteousness is not going to get us anywhere against the swords of the Romans and the hatred of the Pharisees. And it was not until he finally realized that the Lord Jesus had no intention of running away from such a horrible fate. As a matter of fact, it was part of God's plan to pay for the sins of the world. I believe that the change is coming in the world. And this is why I follow the Lord Jesus. It's a change of the heart. The Lord Jesus is coming back to put down all these governments, as it says in Daniel 2, 4 to 4. In the days of these kings shall the God of heaven set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, and it shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and stand forever. It's real. It's literal. It's political. And in my view, sadly, maybe 90% of nice church people do not get that message. And that's why they would mock Christadelphians and, and, and point an accusing finger that we're not patriotic and we're not going out there to bring about necessary changes. It's not that we don't agree with some of the changes they are demanding. We are not at liberty to take that route. It's about faith and changing the human heart. So that's the point of view I would take to someone who's I'm trying to show why I'm leading a certain kind of life and why religion is more than just about joining a church. As I say, you might as well join the Lions Club if you want to do good. I don't know if that helps. Did I no, answer I think, the question or I went yeah. too far to the side? No, I think that that's exactly what I'm looking for. How You're telling me how that conversation would go for you. Yes. Um, I think we just got to be careful while the, you might be drawn in on saying this is the agenda I'm marching for. But very quickly, 
it adds other issues, you know, some of them anti-Israel and some of them dealing with uh, the gender issues, which, you know, we might not have signed up for when starting the march. And in addition to that, I've seen a lot of these marches and it's almost like a, a carnival-like atmosphere in some of them. So I'm sure, you know, that's not what Christadelphians would, would want to stand for either. There's carnivals, there's vandalism, I've seen, you know, looting, stuff like that. But as, as Brother David mentioned, some of the stuff we could agree with, but it's the additional things that kind of tarnish the whole initiative. You guys had your uh, study day in June responding to racism. Is there anything that you've learned or thought of since then? Like, have you had the thought of, oh, I wish we had talked about this or said that or, or hadn't said that or anything like that since June? Um, I, th I think the talk, it was, the talks, it, it's such a wide subject that it's hard to cover everything. But the few things that I thought we could have um, maybe done a bit more, for example, one is dealing with practical areas of how this affects your faith, particularly. And I think this podcast is going to do exactly that. So I think um, slant, there are different angles that could have been taken to approaching this subject. And uh, at the time, it seems so long ago, but at the time, there it was an immediate need to address the prevailing conditions where, you know, protests seem much more heightened. And I think it managed to address some of the pressing issues, but there's still so much more. And I think doing this podcast and speaking a bit more about our faith and also the positive aspects of practical ways in which the pleasure can approach this topic and as a group, it's going to, it's going to help just to grow if we actively engage each other in this subject rather than just seeing it through the eyes of the protests going on in the streets. We, we, we would actually see it as something positive and an opportunity for growth rather than something that we should be defensive about and be afraid of, of talking about. Mm. A second. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you all very much. Yeah, thank you so much. Absolutely. Thanks for having us.